Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Before we get started with our next episode, just want to invite all of you that are listening for the first time or people who've listened to the show before, please go check out our brand new website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. We've got the whole archive there. We've got my blog there where I'm starting to exercise some creative muscles that have atrophied over time, but we're, we're, we're staging a big comeback. You can email me from there, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. You can subscribe to the show on your favorite platform. If you wouldn't mind leaving a review and a rating on iTunes or whatever your favorite platform is, that really helps us out. It makes a big difference for the show. It helps people find us a lot more easily and find all the interesting things that we're doing here on Explore the Space. I'm delighted to have our next guest joining me today. And one of the fun things about this is we're actually getting to do this in person. Um, I am joined by Rabbi George Gittleman, and Rabbi Gittleman is the senior rabbi at Congregation Shomri Torah. I've had the privilege of knowing Rabbi George for many years. Uh, he's been a big part of my family's life since I was a teenager. And it's a real thrill to get to speak with him about some really important subject matter. I had invited him to do the podcast the way I normally do it, which is recording over Skype. And Rabbi George, <clears throat> and Rabbi George said, Mark, I want you to come and do this in person. We're in the same town. Let's do this face to face. So here we are. So Rabbi George, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure to be here. We have had a, an interesting year and a half. And the reason that you and I are sitting down today is we're going to be able to reflect on a couple of things, one of which... Our community went through together in Sonoma County, which was the wildfire that happened in Sonoma County of October of 2017. And the other was something that affected our community on a larger sense, which is the Jewish community, but also our community as Americans, where we all had to deal with the tragic mass shooting that occurred at the Tree of Life Synagogue in October of this year. And the reason that we're sitting down is you carry a really interesting role where you wear multiple hats, you will lead people through a time of pressure, a time of stress, a time of crisis or tragedy from the perspective of a father, a son, a relative, and a friend, but also as a rabbi, so as a spiritual leader. And I think probably you could argue almost as or more importantly as a community leader, right? People we know that are in the clergy from whatever denomination, when there is that time of urgency, eyes will pivot in certain directions. They will pivot to what I do sometimes, which is medicine, and they will always pivot to their spiritual leader and to, and to their rabbi. And so as we get to talk this through, I think we're going to be able to find some really interesting connective tissue on how we can navigate pressure, how we can navigate crises. And I want to just start from the, from the beginning for you of when you are in a situation where you wake up and read a headline or you get a phone call and a flag goes up or a trigger goes off for you that says, this is different. This is not going to be a normal day. What are those things for you? What are you paying attention to in your role as a rabbi and as a friend and all of these different things? And as a community, what things do you pay attention to and have your feelers out to know that you need to shift into a different mode? Well, that's a good question. So depends on the situation. I would say um, as a rabbi, a lot of my work is interpersonal. And that comes more naturally and more easily, and you learn the parameters of that pretty quickly. So, for example, I meet with people all the time, life cycle events, teaching opportunities, um, counseling sessions of various kinds. And most of them fit into, okay, normal time frame. I have hours, you know, make an appointment. 
Um, but if someone calls and they just lost a loved one, then I know right away that those normal parameters go, go away. Or if someone calls and they're crying, or if something has happened in the, in the town, in the county, or in the, in the country, uh, I've learned that I need to respond to that. But it's taken me a long time. I would say that learning how to respond to individuals in crisis, I was trained to do that, and that kind of has come pretty naturally to me. So that was part of your training sure. to become a rabbi, to deal with it on that individual level? Sure, okay. sure. I had um, two hours of coursework and counseling, and okay. also four hours of supervision. Oh, wow. And then we studied the life cycle. So... I was trained to do that, and that's always felt pretty comfortable to me. That's the basis of my calling. I feel like I'm doing the work that I was meant to do, God's work. When I do that, that that has not ever been much of a challenge. I mean, it, it's had taken its toll. We filled a cemetery here in the 23 years I've been here, and it hurts over time. It doesn't get easier. So, But I know how to do that. I would say responding to community crisis has been harder for me. And as a leader, what I, what I learned over time is that you have to know yourself first. Um, and what I learned the hard way is that when it comes to community crisis or any kind of big event, I tend to um, freeze. In terms of fight or flight, I'm, I'm actually, I flee, but in terms of I get immobilized uh, or I want to hide. So the way I learned this was through 9-11. Now, we, we didn't have TV then, and actually right. we only got TV so I could watch Warrior Games. <laughs> and, and my yeah. wife still can't believe that we actually have the evil empire in our home. <laughs> Uh, uh, at $130 a month so I can watch the Warriors, but we do. So, but we didn't, we, we only read the paper basically and listen to the radio. So I remember, I remember the synagogue called me and said, Georgia, no, you don't have TV. It was the president at the time, Diane Smith, great leader. And she said, you got to know what's happening. The, two airplanes have hit the Twin Towers and they're going down. Um, I listened to her. Um, I got off the phone and I didn't do much. I was, I was in shock like everyone else. Uh, I read the paper, I went online, I listened to the radio, and then services are coming on Friday, and people are asking, what are you going to do? And I thought, well, we're going to have services. And all these people came, and they were so disappointed that I didn't really address this huge thing that's happening to us. Yeah. And then I realized, wait a second, George, you got to get it's your responsibility to understand that just because you don't have a TV and you think TV is bad for the psyche, everyone else is watching these planes go over and over into these towers. You have to understand that you have to understand that you need to respond to their need. So it was a painful lesson because I really failed the community. I felt like I failed the community. I got it. We eventually responded, yeah. but but I felt like um, I didn't ever want to do that again. That's a really interesting perspective because when you were saying that, right, the look on my face was shock. I couldn't believe that you said that your initial response, having seen you navigate some of these things firsthand, is that you freeze because I've seen you be as mentally, physically, and emotionally agile as you could ever hope. But what I'm hearing is this idea of, especially for somebody in a leadership role, it's being able to step out of yourself and think to yourself, okay, who's looking to me and what do they need for me? Not do I need for myself right now, but I need to put that community it's, group team ahead of me and say they need this from me in my role. It seems obvious. And I guess what I would say is it was it's obvious to me in certain settings, but yeah. it wasn't obvious to me in the larger setting. Huh. And I needed to learn it and I learned it the hard way. But I will say, I said to myself, never again. Huh. That you, you're 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 not going to let people down that way, yeah. and and even if it's difficult and challenging for you, you're going to learn to turn to to rally under those circumstances. So, that being said, when the fires happened a year and a half ago, I was in shock. My mom needed also to be evacuated. We needed to evacuate. Right. Rabbi Kramer called in the middle of the night, and and I found myself I wanting to flee again. 
And thankfully, I know myself by now, yeah. and also thankfully, Rabbi Kramer, uh, her response was to act. She was very action-oriented. So what we did in the sense of the fires, she, she did the action, and I did what I could do best, which was, was counseling. So I basically spent all my time with people in the synagogue who'd gone through the trauma. I just, I just was here uh, first 24 hours and then every day with my study open and one family after another would come in and sit and talk to me or I would get on the yeah. phone and call them knowing that Rabbi Kramer was doing an exceptional job, really a brilliant job yeah. organizing the community in, in the way it needed to be organized. And that was also helpful because I knew what my limits were. I knew what was happening and I was able to respond in a way that was helpful and important to the community. And then that way I don't feel like, feel like I let people down and I feel like together we were able to do what we needed to do. But let's step back though to that time zero. You find out the fires happen. Right? Right. My wife shakes me awake and says, honey, I can smell smoke. I think there's a really big fire. We turn on the TV and within 90 seconds we know what's going on. Right. For you, when you were in that first phase of you know, waking up, there's a fire, we have to evacuate. Let's walk through kind of in parallel together what the mindset was. We, were, we evacuated too. We're on the road to San right. Rafael. My wife is driving, baby in the car, dog in the car, mother-in-law in tow, family in tow. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to get everybody settled and I need to get back to work. I need to get back to the hospital if the roads are open. Right. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I know that Jess is thinking to herself, we're going to evacuate. And Mark is going to ask me once we're settled, honey, is it okay if I go back? And she and I debriefed on that. Right. So for you, were you in that place of on September 11th, you felt like you froze or was your mind moving in a different way? Were you thinking to myself, we're we going to evacuate, but I'm starting to map out step one of the response is going to look like this step two, step three. A little bit of both. Yeah. My wife is, is a, 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 she worked in emergency medicine for years. She yeah. was on a helicopter. She's a nurse. You know, she still is a nurse yeah. and, and she worked for, you know, flight, flight nurse outfit and she's great. She worked in emergency department for years. So she was really good at getting our house together, you know, getting our papers together. I knew I needed to get, get my mom. Mm -hmm. And I also knew I needed to get to synagogue people who I was worried about that lived near my mom or were in Oakmont. So I was on the phone calling them. And I also knew the synagogue could be open for people. So I was thinking about, we'll open the synagogue. I'll get mom out. We'll go to the synagogue. Yeah. And then Rabbi Kramer and I were talking. So I was, I was fighting my own desire to flee mm. um, while at the same time doing what I needed to do to get our house together and also making plans for the synagogue. I have to say that Rabbi Kramer was elemental in making sure, like I knew we needed to open the synagogue, but she knew to get it on Facebook. I knew I could go there and be there and be there for people, but she was the one who was getting the word out to everyone and beginning to organize our response. So really together we made it work. Without her, I think it would have been a much more muddled response. If it was just up to me, I'm sure I would have rallied, but it wouldn't have been really uh, as effective as it was with both of us. So what, uh, whether you were doing this consciously or not, right? That's, an, that, that's expert level, that's high level delegation. You're saying to the rest of your team, I trust you guys to just do what you do best and it's gonna help us on balance. I'm gonna do what I do best and together, we're going to have exponential impact as opposed to me micromanaging you or you feeling like you're going to fail me, right? When we can trust our teammates to just do what they do best because we've worked together and we've talked about it and we know each other and trust each other, we can really execute at the level that you just described. I, I agree. And I think that's a case of know yourself and know your strengths. Yeah. I, I personally like to work in groups. Uh -huh. I, I get the most satisfaction when a team does well together. Uh -huh. Um, and I really, I love the volunteer effort that we have. Yeah. So that's a natural for me. Uh -huh. um, if I can get out of the flight response 
and show up, I'm likely to involve other people. That's how I, how I thrive anyways. That flight response, though, that's not unique. I think a lot of people have that flight response, whether it's the spot, because the spotlight is on them for some reason. They're, they have to do public speaking. They're being called on to do something that makes them uncomfortable. They're under pressure. Do you have a checklist? Do you have a process? Do you have a mechanism to help yourself move? You've had some experience with this to right. say, I'm, I'm experiencing that flight response, but I know I can't give into it. My role just doesn't, I can't let people down. I'm going to recognize that this is how I feel, but I'm also going to step out of it and I'm going to step out of it pretty quickly because they're, they need me and they're going to need me at my best potentially for a while. How do you work yourself through that? Well, that sounds great. I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> I, I was honestly thinking, I wish I could give you a good response, but in truth, it's a struggle for me uh -huh. and I, I basically muscle out of it. Okay. Uh, that's all I figured out how to do it. In fact, what is that I, muscling? Is it you actually, is it self-talk? Is it, it is. George, it is saying, George, take you, a break and take a breath, but go to work. Right. Go to work. Go to work. Okay. You can't afford to, to flee here. You, you need to show up. Um, and it usually takes a little time. It can, it's helpful sometimes. I'll give you an example. Like Rabbi Kramer, my colleague, mm -hmm. we were getting all kinds of calls for help during the fire. Mm -hmm. And I kept on telling people, we don't need any help. We're going to be fine. And she said to me, said, George, just say yes. We'll figure it out. Say yes. And her telling me to say yes was very helpful because once I started to say yes, I pulled out of that isolating move and started to get the bigger picture. After the shooting uh, in Pittsburgh, which is still shocking, I think, for all of us, Still working with I would, it. I would agree. I found out about the shooting during Shabbat morning, Sabbath morning services here, Saturday wow. morning. And I was, you know, um, just trying to understand what happened, yeah. feeling what I was feeling, noticing that we were all subdued and a little frightened. And then I had plans with a really good friend that afternoon. And I went from services to uh, basically a hike. About an hour into the hike, I realized, George, you can't be on a hike night now. This is, so I, I had moved into this, what I would call a flight response. Mm -hmm. So the hike ended early. Yeah. I, I got to my phone. I'm like, wow, my phone's on fire. And then I quickly realized what I needed to do and started to do it. Uh -huh. But there was a period of time where I just wasn't, you know, and quite awake. To overcome that moment of inertia when you say to yourself, George, you just need to go to work. Do you try to tackle something big and strategic or do you just try to find a foothold? Just open your email and reply to one email. Do you just try to get the ball rolling or are you able to just kind of start boiling the ocean right away. Yeah, in this case, uh, I'm getting better over time. In this case, once I, re I, I recognized what was happening, yeah. I went right to work. Uh -huh. And I, um, I'm help I, I do best uh, when I can work with other people. Yeah. So I called a couple colleagues, okay. very quickly crystallized what I thought I needed to do, realized that it needed to happen in a certain way, which meant I needed to do most of the organizing, got it going, and then really within 24 hours, had most everything planned for what ended up being really a sui generis event for us here. You know, a yeah. thousand people in yeah. a space that holds 400. Right. May that not happen again, but it worked out really well. Really, a truly interfaith, interfaith expression of mourning and hope. Yeah. Beautiful. And I'm proud of that. I'm not so proud that it took me a couple hours to wake up, but that's just the truth. That's yeah. just the truth. And I think that that's important, right? As leaders, we're never going to be perfect. And we commit ourselves to trying to improve. And if we say, well, you know, there's things about the way I responded during the wildfire that I would absolutely want to do differently over the course of those. I mean, for us, it was for a couple of weeks. And, but I just know that, as you say, right, hopefully it never happens again. But if we're ever in a place where we have to navigate a natural disaster, there's things that I'll do differently as a leader, for sure.
And they all revolve around what I think you're describing. It's that being forward facing, being available, making sure people can reach out, that they see you, that they see you leading in the manner that they expect or a manner that they don't expect that exceeds those expectations. I think there's some other aspects of leadership Mm -hmm. that are important to me that go underappreciated, and that is vulnerability. Yes. Um, being willing to be vulnerable, uh, expressing where your weaknesses are in the right format. Like there are times when you don't show vulnerability because people need you to be strong. That's but right. there are other times that strength is vulnerability. So I, I've learned that that's one of the assets I have. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of being vulnerable and I'm willing to admit that when I've made a mistake. Uh, and it doesn't inhibit me from leading or feeling like a, I'm a good leader. I would suggest having seen you in person and over videos that are streamed on the internet that one of the tools that you leverage most effectively as not as a, not as a member of, of the clergy, not as a rabbi, but as someone who is leading a group of people who is giving them somewhere to look for whatever they need to look for. You have the ability to leverage that emotionality in a manner that is wholly intentional, wholly honest, but it's so effective. And I was thinking to myself, what are the things that you do as a leader that I would like to, to take on having watched you work? But also, when are you in the zone, right? We talk, athletes talk about being in the right. zone all the time. And I would guess for you, it's when you are in front of that group and you are allowing that vulnerability to, to happen. I mean, it, I get the sense that you're able to almost conduct your emotion, that you can track the room and allow your emotion to almost guide the room. Be nice if I had that much control. What, what I would say is that I'm a sensitive person yeah. and I use the emotion of the environment as a tool. I relate to it and respond to it and there's a kind of inner vibration that happens. So we work together. I, I'm not always that separate from the group that I'm speaking to or, or teaching or, or with. And there's a lot of strength of that. There's some weakness. So empathy can be overwhelming. I, I have the capacity for a lot of empathy. And sometimes it does overwhelm me. And you, you may have seen me over the years where I feel like my emotions are... For example, I'm at a funeral. I'm not allowed to be more upset than the people that I'm helping, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, that doesn't generally happen. That's just an example. So, so I feel the empathy in the room and it affects what I do, uh, mostly for the good, good, I think. But control is not necessarily a word I would say. Sometimes I wish I had more control. On that score, what I would say that I do that helps me as a leader is I spend a lot of time getting to know myself. I spend a lot of time, I meditate, I pray, I, I use therapy as a tool. You know, I take um, self-discovery very seriously uh, for a lot of reasons. One, I don't want to do harm. And two, I can only be as good as I know myself. Like mm-hmm. The more I know about myself, the better I'm able to be myself and help other people. If I don't know myself well, I get in the way. And the, in the worst case scenarios, I could do harm. So this is for sure true in leadership. Because if you're acting out your own stuff and you don't know it, yeah. you're not, not going to be effective and you could be harmful. Yeah. And also, like if I know that I'm afraid, it's helpful. Likely other people are afraid. Also, probably not a good idea to project my fear, depending on the situation. So knowing first, okay, George, you're actually frightened. Good mm-hmm. to know. A leader who doesn't know their own emotions can get in real yeah. trouble fast. Yeah. Do you think to yourself, so in, in, when I've been in situations like that, I have actively thought to myself, Mark, you need to project calm. You need to project poise. You normally talk loudly, so you need to moderate the volume of your voice. You normally talk fast, so you need to slow down. I will mentally work myself through that like every couple of minutes. What am I projecting? Because I 
for better or for worse, I want to, maybe it's, you know, I'm, I'm helping myself stay calm by trying to project, you know, calm and poise. Do you do that in that moment? Maybe that's where some of that is coming from that I'm perceiving you're orchestrating the room. Are you, are you giving yourself that self-talk of what you should be projecting as you move through an encounter with a, with an individual, with a small sure. group, or with a con- well, well, some of it group. comes naturally for yeah. you. Like as a doctor of the years, you've learned you don't storm into the hospital room. You know, <laughs> yeah. so I would say I do. What I would say is I try to take responsibility for my behavior, mm-hmm. and I try to remember always that it all matters: the tone of my voice, my manner, my emotion. The degree to which I control that is a different story. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice to feel like I really have that much control. I do my best, and I work hard to be aware, and I, I also accept that I'm a human being, but that's not an excuse. You know, I recently was in a phone call with someone who's a volunteer leader in an organization that made a bad decision, and this person said, well, look, I'm just a volunteer, and I said, you know what? In this case, that's not an excuse. The decision you made as a leader, as a volunteer, really adversely affected someone. You have to take responsibility for it. I feel the same way about myself. The fact that I'm a human being is not an excuse, uh, but it's also true. So I'll do the best I can, and I do have routines. Like when I go to the hospital, I say to myself, for example, okay, you're about to enter a hospital room. You're not allowed to bring your day into this hospital around. You need to be present in this hospital room for this patient. Leave the day at the door. And I actively will say that before I enter. And I have other practices. And when I enter a cemetery, I have a practice. I don't want to give you all of them, but I have a number of them that I use. And I rely on just my experience and my general awareness to help me be the best leader and person I can be. And guess what? I fail. Regularly, I fail, but I but I don't let it stop me, and I learn from it and move on. So let's talk about this idea, this concept of failure and leadership, because as we've been talking, it's come up for you I've, uh, sure. several times. How do you know? How do you know as a leader, aside from somebody coming up to you and saying, you did not deliver, how do you, what is your standard? Because we, we're all over the map with how we evaluate leadership. All, all over the map. How do you, when you have finished an encounter that's difficult in the hospital, or you've just addressed a thousand people after a mass shooting, how do you inventory that? How do you say to yourself, that went well, that didn't go well, or I just don't know yet? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, as you're asking me the question, I'm realizing so much of it's subjective. Yeah. But I'll give you some concrete examples. I have a standard. My standard with individuals, and I'm a leader also with individuals, is that I'm not allowed to lose my temper. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not allowed yeah. to bite back, even, even under really harsh circumstances. And, and clergy, a lot of challenging people present themselves to clergy. Yeah. So that's a standard yeah. I have. Mm-hmm. Not too long ago, I had a rough interaction with someone who really, in your normal course of things, you would feel just totally justified in my you know, sharp words to that person. But my standard is I'm not, that's not okay. Uh, because my job is to hold the space for challenging people. That's part of what I do. And so that's an example. I failed. I, it, it's disappointing to me. I'm sorry that it was, you know, hurtful to the person. Uh, I'm a human being. I'll do better next time. Yeah. I, that's how I work with it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I try to put in the context. I do generally pretty well, but occasionally someone will get me in the wrong time and place and watch out. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But you also mentioned dealing with someone who comes at you pretty hard. And right. One of the things that happened during this amazing interfaith ceremony that took place at Shomri Torah, where a thousand people gathered in a room designated for 400, right. all different denominations, all over Sonoma County, all over the region, coming together 
knowing that they're going to be around some friends, but mostly strangers, but man, I just need to be around somebody right now. Sure. And you're orchestrating that. There was somebody that was in the room that was disruptive and they started calling out. And on the video that I watched, I couldn't tell what they were calling out, but it was disruptive. And as leaders, we will deal with disruptive behavior right. in all sorts of manifestations all the time. And Again, I thought that the approach that you took, especially given the context, right? This is as highly charged a room as you could have. Right. You now have somebody yelling that could easily be taken as a threat, right? People are, are they're not just emotionally charged. They're afraid and there's security and there's police. And he's and, a big guy. Yeah. Yeah. And so is something about to happen when you're dealing with the disruptive behavior, but you need to keep, you can't go off. Like you just said, you can't yell at the person. You can't push them out of the room. The approach that you took was you gave him space. He was allowed to shout himself out. You sang. You did a nigun. Well, I would say um, he 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 was allowed to shout, but I because we sang over him. Yeah. You know, it wasn't effective. It was you know he, he, it was disruptive. Yeah. But but we took the power away. So that's, is that the approach then? How do you how do you as a leader? What is your Book, so that's disruptive behavior. So, so hard. Good, really good question. I work with that a lot. Yeah. It really depends on the circumstance. That was a circumstance where I asked myself, what are we going to do? I happen to know this individual mm -hmm. uh, and, and I have a playbook for him, especially. Okay. And I knew that he, up until now, he's not been violent. Uh, he starts out um, making sense and goes into nonsensical words pretty quickly. Okay. So I thought to myself, we're going to sing. People know this melody, yeah. we'll sing loud, and that'll give the police time to find him and escort him out of the room. And then I realized that people don't know him and may be anxious, so I let them know, look, he doesn't actually mean his harm. Yeah. I didn't want to put much attention on Peter. I don't know his last name, I just know his first name. Unfortunately, he's an equal opportunity disruptor, so okay. many of the leaders in town, churches yeah. and other places know about him. So it was a thoughtful process for yeah. me. And I was, I was happy with the way that was handled. I felt yeah. good about it. And, and I would suggest then the connective tissue in there is that you didn't panic, right? That state of calm, that state of poise persisted. Your mind is agile. You're thinking, right. you're moving through. I know this guy. What are we going to, how are we? You didn't start saying, police, go get him. It was, I'm just going to sing. And people are going to respond and I'm going to trust that they're going to follow my leadership. If you had started pointing at him and yelling, that room would have erupted. And it would have been a problem because you were, you know, you've got a thousand. I agree. I, I think that would have been irresponsible. But, you know, but it's, it's, that, it's that skill, right? You, you have a neural circuit that somehow you've developed it, probably some innate, some taught, mm -hmm. some practiced, where in that, I mean, it's, it's a handful of seconds at most, you move through that pathway. And that's the part, like, how does somebody watch that and say to themselves, if you were going to counsel someone that said, Rabbi, I, I need to learn how to do that. I might be in that similar situation. I need to have the mental agility to navigate the problem, but I also need to have the emotional stability to still project what that packed, highly charged, frightened room needs so that they don't panic. Right. How would you suggest someone even just starts on the journey to develop that? Because any leader needs that in their toolbox. Right. I would say for me... Remember, it's not about you, mm -hmm. and you got to deal with whatever you got going on. But you're responsible for the, whoever's there. So it could be 20 people in a class, yeah. uh, or it could be a really large group. But you got to remember who you're there for. You serve them. That's an important thing because I've already said why. You, you, otherwise, you'll get in the way. And yeah. and then 
The rest, I think, you develop over time. I think it will yeah. be difficult to teach someone. You kind of need reps. You do. Yeah. You do. I mean, I've learned over time how to respond to some of these situations. And, and it's a muscle that, that I've grown, basically. I've built up. So there is this video that people can obviously watch. The link will be posted on the website. The, the interfaith ceremony is, it's not easy uh, to watch it. You, you get a sense of what that room was like with what, the way the camera is positioned. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is shoulder to shoulder. There's people sitting on the stage, just the way the seats are oriented, the, the, the stairs are oriented. They actually have their backs to the speaker and it's all okay. It was just about yeah. human kinship and connecting and listening to some leaders speak and just sort of sharing in that moment. Was that helpful? As the leader, as the people, like when you do that inventory, right? Mm-hmm. We've had some time to reflect and we're all still dealing with it. You have the potential to be probably fairly critical of your own performance. If you were to go back and inventory that, do you feel like in that moment I was able to deliver? I know what my opinion is. I know what my family's opinion, having been in attendance, was. Um, but I'm curious to hear what you feel because when it comes up again, there will be things that you'll want to do different. But are you going to have that one in your pocket is, I can deliver. I can do this. And George, you're scared. You're going to want to flee. Get to work and trust that you can do this. You'll execute when you need to execute. I feel good about that event. Yeah, I really yeah, do. Yeah. I, in some ways, I feel too good about it because we had that event and I felt like, okay, we did something meaningful and it did make a difference in terms of um, feeling like we had some agency. Mm-hmm. Also feeling like at least in Santa Rosa, if we ask people to show up for us, they will. That crowd came because there was an article in the paper and I said, the one thing the non-Jewish community can do is they can let everyone know how intolerable this, how intolerable this is for them. And I think that's p- part of why so many people showed up. Plus we I've been here for 23 years, and yeah. we know between you know the congregation and me, we know a lot of people. So the fact that they all those people came was healing because it said, look, we care. This is not okay, and we'll do what we can to protect you and each other. So in that sense, it was worthwhile, but in some ways it was a little too effective for me because it allowed me to put it down, and I'm not sure we can put this down. There's shootings almost every day, That's right. and um, I think it's another case where I need to wake up and, and begin to ask the question, well, what can we do? So yes, I feel I'm proud of what happened here. Mm-hmm. When you have these things happen at the tempo that unfortunately you've had to deal with them in your role as a community leader and as a clergy person, are people reaching out to you to ask some of these questions like, George, I, I live in a community that hasn't had something like this happen yet. It's going to happen. Do you have a playbook? Do you have some suggestions? Can I get some mentorship? Can I get some coaching? So uh, Rabbi Kramer turns out now to be nationally known for how synagogues were fine to uh, respond to crises. Wow. Yes. Because really, she led the outer activities, all uh-huh. the organizational stuff that we did. Uh-huh. She was the, the center of the wheel on that. And she's more really there. Uh-huh. I do get calls from within the Santa Rosa and the Sonoma County community to take a more leadership, active leadership role in the greater community mm-hmm. um, from clergy and other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just like this morning, we had an internal meeting about would we do a gun buyback program, for example? What can we do in regards to gun violence? So I do get uh, requests in terms of leadership here, and it's a matter of figuring that one out. Yeah. You know, there's, there's always plenty to do. It's a matter of figuring out what you can do effectively. But in terms of crisis management, Rabbi Kramer is now nationally known, yeah. at least within the Reformed Jewish world, yeah. as a go-to person. What other, I don't want to say industries, that's not the right word, what other professions do you think would be the most effective for you as a member of, of a clergy, of a, you know, as a rabbi, mm-hmm. to kind of cross pollinate with? Would it be some? Would it be you know someone from 
a, fi- a fire chief? Would it be someone from a hospital? Would it be somebody from the military? Who who are the pe- the who are the people and what are the places that you want to kind of get some insight, maybe get some evaluation, get some get some coaching for yourself to get that kind of cross pollination, to get that crosstalk, right? This is a rabbi and a doctor talking. Who else should be at this table? Very. I haven't really thought about this question. The one of the places that I think um, leaders can learn a lot from is the OD world, the organizational development world, mm-hmm. how, or, how organizations work. And of course, leadership development in general is an interesting topic. I, I find law enforcement interesting. And yeah. I think um, in some ways there could be a benefit for clergy and law enforcement to be more closely mm-hmm. linked. Um, well, you are, right? I mean, unfortunately, now we're in a place where there is law enforcement at the synagogue when there's a large gathering. And they're right. in uniform and they're armed. And also, law enforcement, they end up working in such difficult situations yes. for them yes. and without a lot of community support. So that's an area that I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Always the, the uh, mental health world is an important world for clergy to be yeah. connected to. And the medical world. I mean, I'm, I'm open to all kinds of interactions yeah. with all kinds of groups. My question would be, where could I be the most helpful? And then what, what could I learn the most from? Good question. I don't know. I tend to think of where could I be the most helpful? Uh-huh. And I'm happy to show up almost anywhere where I think I can be helpful. Yeah. But it's a good question in terms of leadership. Where would I cross-pollinate the most? Where would I learn the most from someone else in another leadership area? When you come back on the show, you'll, you'll let us know. Okay, I'll think about it some more. That's right. But you did mention mental health, and I think that one thing that there is some real connective tissue between your work as a rabbi and what I do as a physician is the toll that this can take on you. That the toll of being the forward-facing person, the toll that it can take of seeing some pretty horrible things, of hearing some pretty agonizing stories, it's really difficult. Um, there was a big national conference of trauma surgeons over the weekend, and one of the plenary lectures was on the PTSD that is suffered by the providers who take care of the trauma victims right. themselves. It's it's terribly understudied, but we know that it has an effect. I mean, you ask physicians who do this work, they all say you never stop hearing the screams, and you don't stop hearing the screams. How do you take care of yourself? How do you step through that place so that you don't burn out? It's You're 23 years in. Hopefully, you got a lot more to go. What are the things that you're able to do to help you navigate? And you're smiling because it's hard. Right. And uh, it's hard to think of another 23 years of doing this, right? No, I'm not doing another 23 years. Uh, <laughs> but how do, you, how do you get to 23 years? Right? It's a, it's the, a the good question. The of medicine is struggling with this. We are losing physicians to dropping out of training, to leaving the profession, to suicide at rates that far exceed the national average. How do we allow people the space? How do we give people the skills so that they can yeah, yeah. move no, through No, it's work. an important question. I, For example, um, the secondary trauma of the fire, of course, we did evacuate three times. We had our own trauma, but we yeah. didn't lose our home. Yeah. The secondary trauma uh, resulted in me being pretty depressed for a number of months, mm-hmm. actually. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not afraid to use mental health professionals myself. Yeah. In fact, I, I basically have someone uh, uh, that I see regularly for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether I need to go or not, how you define that, just as part of how I keep myself healthy yeah. and also how I make sure my stuff doesn't affect my role as rabbi in the community. So that's one thing. Another thing for me is I, I serve really good people. People mm-hmm. care. People care about me. I, get, I couldn't get treated better than I am treated here. So I think being in a good work environment is important. Yeah. You know, if you're going to work in this kind of a stressful environment, let's say as a, as a physician or, or as a rabbi, I think physicians, I think it's a more stressful environment than rabbis, but 
um, whatever. If you're going to work, if your work is going to be emotionally challenging, you need an emotionally supportive environment. And if you don't have one, something needs to change. I couldn't do my work if, if I didn't serve a community like Shomai Torah. I can't imagine it. Mm-hmm. And I have colleagues that have more to- toxic uh, work environments, and I really feel for them. It would be impossible for me to do my work in a mm-hmm. toxic work environment. Yeah, yeah. So that's one thing. And then I, I have a life. Yeah. I have other t- things I like to do, and I make sure that I do them. And, and you I keep that for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It is true that I work... My hours are funky. My, uh, you know, my family would say I'm always working, but I also play a lot. Uh-huh. I'm on call mostly, um, and so I don't get long stretches when I'm not touching my work. But whenever I can, I go for a hike. I have a number of hob- hobbies I do that I'm quite into. Mm-hmm. I fly fish. I play a shotgun sport called sporting clays, um, which, oh, yes. I, which I'm really into. And so those are the ways I take care of myself. Yeah, and you have that good routine that you've practiced. Yep. That's a journey that I'm on is developing that good routine so that I can keep doing the work that I love to do, but recognize that the tempo that sometimes I try to do it at is entirely unsustainable. Um, and it's, it's really difficult work. And, you know, you talk about those hobbies that you have and that those things that you do. And I'm struck by the fact that when you did that, you said that you were smiling. I'm sure it didn't come easily though. You probably had to practice recreating. You probably had to practice saying, I am disconnecting for a little while. The world will not crumble without me. Everyone will be okay. Right. And I'm going to go do push-ups and run wind sprints and then go for a hike. For sure. And and I've gone through different phases. Yeah, yeah. The first 10 years I was here, I, you know, my work life and my, well, a rabbi's work and their life were merged to begin with, but uh-huh. mine was, you know, really enmeshed in an unhealthy way. Uh-huh. But then what happened is my brother died mm. and that changed my life because... All of a sudden, he was dying. He was in Santa Cruz. I was up here. I needed to see him, and I needed to make time for it. And I, I did. Um, and then he died. Was he had cancer, and within three months, he was gone. And then I was, I was, you know, in mourning and pretty bereft. And I looked at my life and I said, "How do I do this? I can't do this anymore." And you know, that's what happens when actually you're in mourning. The world doesn't stop, but you do. But it is an opportunity to see your life more clearly. And I did. And after that. Ever since his death, Willie's death, I, I reorganized. I did fall back, you know, and I still do, but I never really went completely back to that crazy, enmeshed mm-hmm. uh, life. I learned to make time for myself and my family, um, and that was a turning point for me. As we move towards the end of this, I'm just sort of thinking through this incredible basket of goodies that you've given us, not to diminish it, but so many skills that you've just described that I think anybody can pluck something out of there and start to mess with, start to practice, start to try to make their own and put their own spin on it and tweak it the way that it works for whatever it is they specifically Mm do. How do you foresee or do you foresee a role for which you would take that forward? Is there a book? Is there a way that the stuff that the experiences that you're having, right? Human beings propagate knowledge through writing and through the oral tradition are you going to be able to continue to propagate that? Is there, is there going to be a role? You're going to come on Explore the Space. Hopefully you'll come back. Where well, does that knowledge go from, from, from there? I'm going to dodge that question. Okay. And I want to add one other thing. Okay. As a person of faith, as a religious person, that I, I think another, and I'll come back to it. That's I fine. think one other thing to remember is not only not about you, but you're not alone. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. But prayer means different things to different people. Yeah. But yeah. when I remember that I, that I serve a greater cause, yeah. um, that's helpful to me. 
I wouldn't say just helpful to me, it's essential to me. If I thought it was, you know, just us and just me and just this community, I think I wouldn't have nearly the strength uh, to draw from than realizing that it's much bigger than me, it's much bigger than us. Um, I've read some interesting books. I don't read a lot of leadership books, but some of the ones that I've picked out have reflected on the loneliness of leadership and how it can feel very, very lonely. Right. You want to confide and you can't confide in the people that you're leading some of the time because they, they're not, that's not what they need from you. They need you to be strong. Um, it, it's, that's interesting to hear you reflect on being a rabbi. You've always got that companionship or just being a person who carries anybody it. has yeah, it. Anyone has anyone it. Has right. it. Right. You right. might have to develop, develop it a little bit. Yeah. It might be uncomfortable yeah. for you, but uh-huh. I think it's, it's an important aspect of yeah. being a human being. In terms of how will I propagate this, in truth, until you asked me to talk about leadership, I hadn't thought about myself as a leader. I huh. think of myself as a community builder yeah. and a community leader. Yeah. But, but I, when I reflect on myself, I feel like I have such a ways to go in terms of being a, a leader. I'm a leader in progress. Like, I'm, you know, you say you're a work in progress. I feel like, especially after our conversation, I'm doing okay. Yeah. And I got a ways to go. Yeah. yeah. When, I, when I get there, I'll, I'll give you another. Because yeah. I, I watch you do your work. I watch you in front of a room of people. And I see you with like the, you know, the emblem of the U.S. Senate in front of your podium. I see all sorts of different things for you if you wanted to pursue them. They're there for the taking for you because of the skill set that I think you possess. Now, you'll, you'll walk those roads or you won't. You'll walk the road that's right for you and you'll serve a tremendous number of people. But for me, this was really an important conversation to have because I've watched you do this work and have been observing you not from the place of, I need to hear what the rabbi has to say because I feel like I need guidance. I feel like I've been very fortunate that I've had other people to fill those roles for me. I've been watching you be like, how does he lead? And I have been struck by the effectiveness with which you are able to deliver, the way you're able to navigate disruptive behavior, the way you're able to guide the room to the place that you need it to go, to show emotion, to withhold emotion, to sing, to laugh, and to to represent your community in a really, really effective manner. So there is still a journey for you because it needs to come out. It, there needs to be more of this because you're good at it. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. What can I say? Yeah. Uh, lovely to hear. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned during the, the interfaith ceremony, there was a line that you said, and I think it's just a really nice way to wrap this up. You put out into the room that what you were trying to do and what you, that group was trying to do was to offer light in a dark world. Mm-hmm. And it was early in the ceremony that you used that line. And I would suggest that that is what you're doing. And mm-hmm. it's been really wonderful to talk with you about it. We need people that offer light in the dark world. It's something that you're doing. It's something you're helping our community to do. And by putting these things out in a forward-facing manner, you're helping people from anywhere that can access this to do that. So I really appreciate you coming on the show. My pleasure. Great talking with you. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.